Well, I'd like to call your attention this morning to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. That will be our text this morning. Mark 12, verses 1 through 12, as we continue our journey through this gospel and see the life and ministry of Jesus. I also have to admit that I left out an important announcement about today, which is that it's the first Sunday of the month. And those of you who are familiar with our uh, church calendar know that the first Sunday of the month is Sack Lunch Sunday. So, uh... Good job, everyone who's ready for sack lunch. If you brought a sack lunch, that's what we do. We just have some time for fellowship to to continue beyond our service and eat lunch together. If you didn't bring food, that's all right. You can go grab something and come on back, and there will be time to to share in that. So I didn't want to fail to mention sack lunch uh, this afternoon. I'm going to read our text and pray for God's blessing. Um, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And as they were seeking to arrest, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word. We thank you for sending us Jesus Christ, the God man who lived in a life of obedience and righteousness before you, who taught us your ways with clarity and authority and wisdom and truth. The one who himself was the suffering servant, who subjected himself to the abuse of others so that he could ransom for you people redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation. Thank you that he lives, he's been resurrected, and he is continuing to build his church. As we come under the hearing of his word, we plead with you for your spirit to work powerfully through me to speak with clarity and authority and love and truth. And we pray for your spirit to give us all ears to hear. Give us hearts that are soft and eyes that can see to be shaped and molded by your word, to meet you in a powerful way. Bring about transformation, bring about faith and obedience and do more among us than we could ask or imagine. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've been playing with a lot of Legos lately around our household. And uh, Legos were like my favorite toy for a lot of my childhood. And 
I had a lot of Legos. Some of those Legos we're still playing with. And uh, there's kind of two different ways of getting a new Lego set, two different philosophies. you got the one type. This is me, the type that gets it and, and opens up. First thing you want to find is the instructions. And you have to follow the instructions step by step to a T because you want to build it just right. And then you got the other kids they get the new set and they see the instructions. It's just a piece of paper to throw away, right? And then it's just, I want to build it. I want to build, either they may have tried to build it exactly like it looks on the box or they just want to build their own thing. But I want you to imagine getting a new Lego set and you're excited to build it and you're that, and you take that approach of, I don't care about the instructions. I'm going to do it my way. So you, 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 you discard the instructions and you start looking at the pieces and you're going, okay, I'm going to build this thing. And you see a piece that looks really strange. And you go, this is a weird piece. I don't know what on earth I could do with this piece. I don't know how it's going to fit the set. I don't know how it's going to work into the whole. And so what you do is you take that piece. It's like the first thing you do, take that piece and you just throw it in the trash along with the instructions. Now, I think all of us can recognize that's a pretty bad idea. Because it might happen that as you're building, you might realize, oh, there was a function for that piece. It actually turned out to be pretty important. And maybe if you were the type that just looked at the instructions, you would know that. But anyway, the point being, sometimes we don't know how a piece is going to be important when we're building on our own plan. And our text this morning continues Jesus' controversies with Israel's religious leaders in Jerusalem. And the main issue at hand in this passage, as it really is throughout the whole gospel, is a question of what to do with Jesus. But before we ask the crucial question of what we should do with Jesus or what we will do with Jesus, there's another question, a prior question that we have to answer. And that is, what is God doing with Jesus? What is God doing with Jesus? And this morning, the main idea, the main thing that we need to get from this passage is that God wants to convince our hearts that he has made the rejected stone the cornerstone. God wants to convince our hearts that he has made the rejected stone the cornerstone. And why does he want us to see this? Well, there are three reasons that we'll look at why God wants to convince us of this truth. And we'll see, first of all, he wants to warn us. Secondly, he wants to wow us. And thirdly, he wants to woo us. He wants to warn us, wow us, and woo us. So first of all, let's see how God wants to warn us. That opposition to Christ never wins. That's the warning. Opposition to Christ never wins. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Isaiah, or if you just listened carefully to Eric's reading a few minutes ago, you might recognize how Jesus' parable riffs on that allegory of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, along with some other passages in the Old Testament that use the metaphor of the Lord planting his people like a vine. The idea back in Isaiah, as we heard, was that the Lord planted his people. He set them up with ideal conditions. You hear it in the language, like, what more could I do for my vineyard? I gave them everything they need so that they're well set up to produce the fruit of righteousness and justice. That's what he wants. That's what would please him. And you see other texts like Isaiah 61 verses 3 and 11 that also talk about how he's seeking the other fruits like glory and praise from his people. So he wants this people to be like a vineyard that produces righteousness and praise and glory. In Isaiah's version, as we heard, the people failed to bear fruit. And what did the Lord do? He held it against them. 
they have produced unrighteousness, wild grapes, instead of righteousness. And so the judgment is against the people as a whole. But it's a little bit different here in Jesus' reprised version. Here in Mark 12, the criticism shifts from the people as a whole to the leaders. And you might recall, it's been a while, but when we've been in Mark, it was back in chapter 11, verse 27, that we met the people Jesus is talking to. And it is this threefold group of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These are Jesus' conversation partners. They're the leaders of Israel's religious order. And it's these people who approached him challenging his authority. That's what began this interaction. So, in this parable that Jesus tells, we have an owner who clearly, it's no mystery, represents God here. And in verse 1, he puts down the capital to establish a vineyard and give it every advantage that it needs to succeed. It's very much following in the stream of that Isaiah 5. So, he gives it a fence to protect it. He gives it a uh, wine press, because of course you've got to produce wine from the grapes. And a tower, which would be for guarding, for someone to stand and be able to guard the property. And so he has given them everything that they need to produce fruit. And back in Jesus' day, it was common for absentee landowners to lease out their land to farmers who would work it. And the, the agreement was that they would work the land, they would produce a harvest, and then they would contribute a portion of the harvest as their payment, their lease for the land to the owner. So that's the implicit arrangement here. And in verse 2, it comes time. The vineyard has grown up. It's matured to the point that there's a harvest. And now it's time for the owner to collect his due payment. He deserves this payment. It's rightfully his. And so he sends a servant. And these servants represent Israel's prophets. Because God set up the nation with the covenant and his law in the good land of Canaan. And he gave them the priesthood who was to teach and administer God's law among them. But the fruit was not forthcoming. Israel did not produce the fruit of righteousness and praise that God intended for them. And so he began sending prophets. He began sending his messengers to come and to be the voice of God, speaking in his place to the people, to call the nation back to their vocation. God had called them to to produce fruit, to be the people, as it were, to gather in that harvest that wasn't coming. And how did the nation receive those envoys? Well, just like the tenant farmers in the parable, with rejection, with abuse, and rebellion against God himself. Many of these prophets were persecuted. Several of them were even killed for their faithfulness to God's message. And so in our parable, the action cycles through several times. The first time it happens in verses 2 to 3, it's kind of a more spread out and and longer uh, telling. But each telling, it gets more and more compressed. Verse 4, it happens again. And then in verse 5, it's like a montage. We just see it happening over and over and over again. And we're shocked and horrified. One messenger after another keeps receiving this brutal, murderous treatment. And we come away at verse 5 going, these are wicked, brutal wretches that are occupying this land. They're withholding from the owner what they justly owe him. And they're mistreating his representatives. They're dishonoring him ultimately. So then when we come to verse 6, Jesus gives us the internal monologue of the owner. It says, He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. Now, we might read this and think that it's portraying God as limited and ignorant and naive. That in deciding to send his son, was the father unaware of how Jesus would be received? Was he so naive, thinking, Oh, this will work. They'll welcome him. They'll receive him. 
That's not what Jesus is doing with this parable. Jesus is using this fictitious character of the landowner to illustrate something real about the mercy and patience of God in sending his most precious son for this one final powerful appeal to those who don't deserve it. It is astounding. You get to verse 6 and it is astounding. You're like, what are you thinking? (laughs) Isn't it amazing that after all this wickedness, he would still give them one final chance and not any chance, but the most costly to himself. That's the point of verse 6 as we go, are you sure you want to do that? And at this point, the tension is through the roof and and it's tragic. We all know where this is going. Even on your first reading, you get to verse 6 and you're like, oh no, oh no, don't do it. (laughs) Don't send him. We all know what's going to happen. But he does it. He sends him. And as verse 12 will, will tell us, Jesus' hearers have some sense of what this parable means. It says that they knew he was speaking against them. And we don't know exactly how much of the parable that they understood. I can't imagine them missing the fact that Jesus is referring to the owner's son as himself. Uh, they miss a lot in Jesus' parables and his teaching. I can't imagine they don't see that, that he's claiming, I'm that son. And in your plots against me, you are becoming these people. And if that's the case, if, if, if it is becoming clear that Jesus is claiming to be the son, then what we have here is Jesus proclaiming his identity and his crucifixion and his resurrection more openly and publicly than he ever has before in Mark. We've gone through the central section of Mark where he says it very plainly to his disciples uh, who he is as the son of man, as the Messiah, and that he'll be crucified and then he'll be raised on the third day. He has not been so forthcoming in public. But what we see is that as we move toward the cross, even in this somewhat shrouded parabolic form, the, the clarity is gradually increasing. He's starting to make it more and more clear who he is, who he claims about himself. It's like the cross is this lens through which Jesus uh, Jesus and his identity and his mission become more and more clearly focused. So the closer we get to that climactic event, the more and more clearly the characters can see Jesus, who he is claiming to be. And and later on in his trial in chapter 14, verse 61, they're going to ask him whether he's the son of God. And I believe it's like here that he first plants the idea that he's claiming to be the son of God. So back in our story in verses 7 and 8, He does. He sends the son. And we see the tragic but unsurprising response of the tenants. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Their internal dialogue exposes the desire of their hearts. What drives these people? It's selfish ambition. It's lust for personal gain. There's not a shred of justice, let alone mercy, driving these people or occupying space in their hearts. And again, we'll see in verse 12 that the way Jesus' opponents react to the parable show that the shoe fits. They are who Jesus says they are. Because in verse 12, they're going to be driven not by truth and goodness and righteousness, but by personal preservation, by personal gain. They're concerned about how they're going to be treated. In verse 12, they discern that they're the targets of this parable, It says, seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They want to arrest Jesus, but they know that the crowd is sympathetic to him, 
and they're afraid of what the crowd will do to them if they make a move against Jesus. So these are, that's their heart. They're driven by personal gain and personal preservation. Back to the story. The tenants kill the son and they throw him out in verse 8. And then in verse 9, this is really the, the payoff, right, for the whole parable. He draws on the power of a well-told story. And he leverages this story to appeal to their own reason, to appeal to their own sense. He has set the table to ask this big question in verse 9. It's almost like he's saying, you judge for yourself. What's he going to do? What should he do to these people? Don't these tenants' callous greed and rebellion and selfish ambition and murderous injustice cry out for punishment? Doesn't it cry out for a just response? Of course it does. That's why the owner will, in fact, come and destroy them. What does verse 9 represent? Well, just a chapter on from here in in chapter 13, verse 2, Jesus will predict the complete toppling of Jerusalem's temple. And that prophecy, the Roman rulers will fulfill in dramatic fashion about a generation on from Jesus' time in AD 70. They will destroy the Jerusalem temple and really undo the whole religious order of Israel ultimately. And that's what Jesus is predicting here. God will bring down Israel's religious order and temple and priesthood. And it will no longer be this place and this people as such, this ethnic nation that is the people of God. But he'll hand over his kingdom to a new people, the church of Jews and Gentiles, those who accept the Son and bear fruit for God. You have Paul talking about this in Romans 11, verses 17 to 24, about the people of God as an olive tree. And God has removed some of the natural branches, and that would be those uh, of Israel who don't believe, and he's grafted in new ones, the believing Gentiles. And this new people of God is the church. Doesn't mean he won't graft anyone back in again that he's pulled out. But this is the people of God, the church, those who receive the Son. So what is Jesus teaching us with this parable? Well, he's teaching us that God intends for his people to produce the good fruit of righteousness and justice and praise and glory to God. It may be humbling to us. It may even be offensive to us to hear that we exist not for ourselves. And we're saved not for ourselves, but for God's pleasure and for God's honor. Those of us, though, who know Christ and belong to God, we do find it the most joyful and satisfying calling that we exist to bring God glory. That is why we exist as individual Christians. That's why he saves us. That's why we exist as a church, to be to God's praise. Now, throughout Old Testament history and climaxing, of course, in, this is what Jesus is saying, climaxing in their rejection of him, Israel's religious leaders failed their calling. They were supposed to help God's people produce fruit, but they turned against God himself. So Jesus is pointing to his coming cross and saying that will be the moment that culminates their rebellion against the Lord that they claim to serve. But he's not just talking about Israel's religious leaders. When he says God is sure to bring judgment against the rebellion of men who reject him and reject me, he's not just talking about the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. There is a particular historical reference here, but in all times and all places, rejecting God Rejecting his rightful rule over our lives. Rejecting his son remains a wicked and blameworthy act. Some of us may think we can reject Jesus or ignore him and not face any consequences. If that's you this morning, God has a corrective word for your heart to watch out. Because a reckoning is coming. 
And at the same time, he's testing us, graciously testing and showing us what drives our hearts. Are we consumed with a love for justice and truth and goodness? Or, like these tenants, does selfish ambition rule us? When we're considering Jesus and what to think of him, what's ruling us? What's driving our heart there? Perhaps you've heard of him and you've encountered him in the Gospels. And as you consider what to make of him, the engine that's driving in your heart is just this sort of selfish ambition, this desire for personal gain. You may not be asking yourself questions in your heart like, what's true? What's good? What's righteous? You may be asking yourself questions like, what's advantageous for getting my way? If that's you, then God is putting you on notice today. He is flashing warning signs on the highway that you are headed for a, the road is washed out ahead of you. You're headed for a perilous drop. If you've rejected God's authority, and if you go on to reject God's son, there is no other salvation available. There's no security. And one day you'll stand fully exposed to God's fiery justice. And even now, that justice is hanging over your head. As John 3.36 says, the wrath of God remains on, on you today if you're rejecting Christ. God's judgment against the wicked is sure, but as Ecclesiastes 8.11 tells us, the, the patient delay of God's justice often lulls the wicked into feeling secure and thinking it'll never come, it'll never happen. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There's this perception of, I'll never have to uh, give account for my actions. I'll never have to pay back the injustice for my deeds. And they can lull people into thinking that they're safe. This explains a good deal about the state of our world today. And does it explain anything about the state of your life? Thinking that justice delayed is justice escaped. You'll never have to give account. Jesus' parable is warning us that that is not how it will end up. Consider this the warning from the mouth of God himself. Rejecting the Son will never lead to your lasting profit. It will only lead to your everlasting ruin. And so even now he calls you to relent, to turn back, to receive Christ with a response of faith, to find in him all of your salvation and your forgiveness and your eternal life. You don't have to go down that dangerous road, that road that that's drops ahead of you. You don't have to keep going. God's offering you a blessed and glorious off-ramp. Come to me through Jesus. Come in faith even now. Receive life in him. And another thing John 3.36 says is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Will that be you today? Against all contrary appearances, the triumph of godless evil in our day is merely an illusion. Sometimes in sports, maybe, or in warfare, one contestant who really ultimately has no chance at all may appear for a short time to have a chance. Uh, maybe a far outmatched opponent may land a couple of good punches early on in a boxing match, or a slow horse may just get off to a good start and take an early lead, and it looks like they have a chance, they have a chance, but that appearance is a mere mirage, right? And as time goes on, as, as the inevitable gradually begins running its course, we all start to see, oh no, the better side will turn it around and win. The, the better side will eventually win. And it may seem like there's no account, there's no justice for our rejection of Christ, but justice is coming and sin has no chance. And Jesus' parable is warning us that we can't win against Christ. 
For those of us, though, who know and trust Jesus, this is an encouragement to us. Because we might find ourselves tempted to look around at his kingdom, at the present state of his kingdom, the the appearance, and to judge it impotent and dishonorable. The appearances may not be very impressive to us. The church doesn't seem very exciting or uh, very impressive. The people are ordinary and quite flawed. The preaching is boring. Uh, The world's response to us ranges from dismissal to condescension to belittling and trivializing and outright opposition. Things don't always look great for the people of God. And it can feel frustrating to all of us. And it can, it can induce anxiety and sorrow to look around and see how our world mocks Jesus. How it distorts and trivializes the gospel and how it belittles the church. That's the world. But then it's to add to that, professing Christians, sullying the name of Christ, doing all kinds of wicked things in his name. False gospels that deceive many. And we look at the state of affairs and we long for justice. We long for the true state of things to become clear. When will righteousness and truth prevail? Well, this brings us happily to our next main heading. God wants to convince our hearts that he has made the rejected stone the cornerstone. First, we just saw to warn us. And then now secondly, to wow us with the reversal of resurrection. To wow us with the reversal of resurrection. I don't know if wow is really a verb, but we can use it that way, okay? He wants to induce awe in our hearts. See, at first glance, so we get through this parable in verse 9. At first glance, verse 10 seems a little bit mysterious. What is Jesus doing? Because he just talked about the, the owner coming and destroying the, ten, uh, the, the tenants, giving the vineyard to others. And then he says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, essentially saying, didn't you know that the Bible says that the rejected stone would be God's cornerstone? What's Jesus thinking? What's the connection here? Well, by the end of verse 9, these leaders, surely, if if they can tell he's talking about them, they're certainly scandalized by the notion that they, the religious elite, would reject God's Son. That they would be found on the wrong side of God's purposes. And not only disbelieving him, but so actively opposing and antagonizing him. So Jesus reaches for the language of this psalm to prove that that very thing, in fact, was prophesied. And, And not only that, not only that the leaders, the authorities would reject the stone, but that there is a reversal ahead. And the vineyard story itself kind of ends. There's no opportunity for this reversal. The son ends up dead. That's the end of the story. But the real story transcends that conclusion. Because God has a great reversal in store for the rejected son. So now he switches to this image of of builders building a building. Builders building a building. (laughs) And uh, there's a stone that could possibly be used in the construction of this building. This is the temple that's being built. Solomon's temple. And the the stones are brought in. And this is, of course, the masonry that's going to go into building this building and uh, they look at this rock and they go what can we do with this thing and they look around at it and they they assess it from every side and they go we can't do anything with this thing this is useless and so they reject it it's unusable but in God's surprising reversal this stone that was once judged useless becomes the most important one it becomes the cornerstone that holds up the weight of his entire structure you notice that God, in doing this, he's rejecting their building and starting his own. He's not just shoehorning that stone somewhere into theirs. He's saying, okay, I'm starting a new thing. 
And that's actually going to be the most important piece in my building. What is the building that God is building? Again, it's the temple. It's the temple. Uh, If you've been in equipping hour with us recently, we've heard a lot from New Testament language, this temple language to describe the people of God where the spirit of God dwells. And one particular passage that in an extended way uses this metaphor is 1 Peter chapter 2. So the apostle is using this extended picture of the spiritual temple to describe the church. And it's a powerful image because it really does a lot of work explaining who we are as the people of God. And, and I'll read it in just a moment, but it explains the role, the place of individual Christians in the whole. It explains the presence of God in our midst. It explains the activity of our worship. And, and most to the point today, it explains how we're built on Jesus as the one that was previously rejected. And now he's the cornerstone of this new temple. So 1 Peter 2 verses 4 to 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, end quote. The temple is the new covenant people of God, the church, and Christ is the cornerstone that that holds up the weight of the whole thing. So despite former appearances and despite the best efforts of wicked men, what the Lord is doing, verse 11, is produce this radical reversal. Now, um, as we've seen in Jesus's prior predictions of his death and resurrection, we've seen this pattern where um, the kingdom of God is full of ironies and reversals. What do we keep hearing about Jesus in that middle section of Mark? That he's the servant, that he's the suffering one. Uh, The kingdom is all about these ironies. Who is welcome in the kingdom? We saw back in chapter 10. It's those with lowly and childlike faith. Who are the great ones in the kingdom? Well, they're the servants. And the very greatest is the servant of all. Everything flips on its head, human expectations and thinking. And so it is with the resurrection. That just when evil men will think that they've finally taken care of Jesus, and they've finally defeated him, and they finally have their way, God will raise him up and vindicate him with a glorious, incorruptible resurrection body. And God's reversal at the resurrection of his son is indeed powerful and glorious. And it is marvelous for those who have the eyes to see. That's what he says at verse 11. It is marvelous in our eyes. And as we've seen numerous times now in Mark, the big question this presses on us is whether we have the eyes to see. How marvelous this reversal is. The exalting of the crucified one, Jesus Back in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, we were told, For those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. Do we have the eyes to see? What a marvel this divine reversal of Jesus' resurrection is. Both in the past, in the resurrection, and in the the, the present, the future, there's an appearance of defeat and dishonor in God's workings with his people but it will give way to sudden life and victory and vindication. 
I mean, just think about it. Don't you think that it would have been foolish to judge the success of Jesus on the Saturday after his crucifixion? To kind of be like, okay, what, what does this all amount to on Saturday? What, what do we think of Jesus at the, the very moment the stone is decisively rejected by the builders? Is that a good time to judge? What would we say to that prospect? We would say, the story is not over. Just wait a day and you'll, you'll see things change. The Lord will raise him up and make him the cornerstone. And so it is with us. The text is training us to judge Christ's kingdom, not in terms of present day degrees of apparent success in the world. But we judge the kingdom in terms of the surprising reversals yet to come when Jesus appears and completes what he began in his resurrection. So we wait for God's work. We wait for God to exalt us with Jesus at the proper time. And as we wait with confidence in the Lord's work, it is indeed marvelous and beautiful to our eyes how God overturns and puts to shame the world's power and the world's wisdom in the resurrection and in the cross of Christ. God's entire design in the gospel, the word of the foolish cross, is tailor-made to frustrate the fallen wisdom of man and exalt the mysterious, otherworldly wisdom of God. This is precisely what Paul's writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, when he says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And he's talking about the cross of Christ. He chose what is foolish to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is God's way of of working in the gospel. So brothers and sisters, refuse to judge Christ and refuse to judge his kingdom by the temporary lowly appearances, by the imperfection and uh, just the ugliness that we do see discern the end of its glorious reversal. So if we're persecuted for the the sake of Christ, or if we groan in our fallen bodies waiting for our redemption to be complete, or if we long for deliverance from our indwelling sin, then look to how God flipped the script when Jesus rose again. That is God's mode of working. We have seen the beginning of his reversal in the resurrection, and we're waiting for yet more reversal when Christ returns. We all love the glorious reversal of a rags-to-riches story. Uh, We love hearing the story about the foster kid who grows up and goes on to start a successful company. Or the kid from the inner city had a really rough past in his youth and he goes on to become a star athlete. We love those stories. We love how expectations are broken and the mighty and the proud are brought low and the humble are lifted up and vindicated. And I think the reason we love those stories is because they all echo of the big story, the narrative that God is telling about the gospel of his son. That all these reversal stories are really pointing to the greatest one, the the story of how Good Friday culminated with Easter Sunday. And that's the shape of all God's dealings in, in his creation with Christ. Christ will come again and the reversal will be complete. So God wants to convince our hearts that he has made the rejected stone the cornerstone. First, we sought to warn us. Secondly, to wow us at his reversal. And thirdly and finally, he wants to woo us into the kingdom of his beloved son. To woo us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So as we've seen, Jesus quotes in verse 11 from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, about the Lord reversing the fortunes of the rejected stone. 
Now, if you were with us a while back when we looked at Jesus entering Jerusalem back in chapter 11, what was interesting is that the crowd greeted Jesus with another quotation from Psalm 118. In fact, it's just a few verses later, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's amazing these ties between the life of Jesus, especially this climactic week in Jerusalem with Psalm 118. But the point here is that God himself in prior scripture has already supplied us with the proper response to this ironically exalted cornerstone. And the proper response to him is save us, blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us. We welcome you who come in the name of the Lord. And with this parable and this word about God's reversal for the, for the stone, what is Jesus urging us to do? He's urging us to welcome the beloved son. Just as the voice from heaven told us on the Transfiguration Mountain in Mark 9, 7, listen to him, my beloved son. Welcome him. Call out to him for salvation. Hosanna, save us. What should the wicked tenants have done when the, the sun appeared on the horizon coming on the owner's behalf? They should have thrown themselves at his feet for mercy. They should have said, we beg you, we plead with you to please, on our behalf, go to the Father and please Win favor for us. We've so grievously offended him. They should have welcomed him. And even as he predicts his saving death as a servant, and even as he predicts his triumphant resurrection, and he predicts the shaming and defeat of his enemies, he's holding out before those who hear him, even his enemies, a different course, a different way that they can go. In the words of Psalm 2, Kiss the son lest he be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And if we need any more incentive to welcome the Son, consider, back to verse 6 in this parable, consider the character of God in sending him. As I said earlier, verse 6 does not portray God as naive and, and imperfect in his knowledge. It portrays him as overflowing with patience and mercy. How could God do such a thing as to send his beloved Son to such a cruel and wicked world as ours, to such evil men and women, such sinners as us? The kindness of God is calling us to respond with a heart of faith, a soft, excuse me, a soft heart before him. Maybe he's calling you to respond that way for the first time if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus. Or for those of us who do believe, he's calling us once again to maintain that trusting heart that adores and welcomes the Son of God and cherishes his kingdom. Do you remember those magic eye images from the 90s? Does anyone remember magic eye? It looks like this meaningless, colorful pattern, but then you, you, you adjust your eyes, you look at it just right, and suddenly this hidden 3D image leaps off the page at you. Who has the eyes to see the glory and goodness of the beloved Son? Only a certain condition of spiritual vision can perceive what a treasure God has sent. And say along with God the Father in Mark 1.11, his baptism, with you, Jesus, I am well pleased. Can we see the glory of God sending his son in patience and mercy for sinners? Can you see the glory of his reversal, his resurrection, his reign? Can you see the all-surpassing value of the precious son, the loveliness of the beloved? Can you see, I see why the father loves him so much. He is lovely. He's altogether beautiful. God is is wooing our hearts this morning to welcome his son. For all who trust in Jesus to know in Christ the victory is ours, the resurrection is ours, the reversal is ours. 
outwardly will waste away, but because we're a part of his kingdom, we are experiencing this inward renewal as we await the hope of glory. God wants to convince our hearts, brothers and sisters, that he has made the rejected stone the cornerstone, and that all who put their trust in him, all who build on him, will never be put to shame. We've heard God warning us that you won't win against Christ, his beloved son. And we've heard something truly glorious to, to uh, induce awe in our hearts. That God has used the worst of man's wicked rage and he's flipped it around in the resurrection of Christ. And he's called us to look ahead to further reversals to come. The evil world will not withstand the coming and judgment of the true king. We've also heard God wooing us to a response of faith and adoration toward his son. He comes with such mercy, such patience towards sinners, such humility as a suffering servant. May we welcome the son with a faith that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And may our heavenly father by his life-giving spirit ever soften and open our hearts to welcome his son with faith and adoration that his loveliness supremely deserves. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ, for not withholding your very own son. And we think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, that he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In Christ, as heirs of your kingdom, we have everything. We have eternal life with you. God, we pray that any in this room who are hearing the warning of Jesus and who are outside of him and don't believe in him, that you would work in their hearts to cause them to fear you. That you would work in their hearts to cause them to see what they could not see before. The glory of Jesus coming as the, the one full of grace and truth from your side to rescue sinners. Please draw all to him and to find eternal life in him. And please cause us not to fret or be anxious when the present state of affairs seem to indicate that your kingdom is losing. May we have confidence that the one who has been resurrected will indeed complete what he's begun. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.